My goal for the next couple of years for my organization is that we fail faster and understand better how to get in sync with commercial cycles, which are much faster than ours. And we have, one of the nice things about the agency is we have special authorities, so we can do such things. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. In what might be one of the coolest government roles you could find, Don Myrick's job is to bring the latest and greatest science and technology to the Central Intelligence Agency, like James Bond's Q in a modern world of data, drones, and DNA. This is Tectonics. I'm David Chaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, Lisa, what is your favorite spy novel or movie? Well, I mean, I'm going to have to go with Austin Powers. Yeah, baby, yeah! <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to get too serious here, you know, and I particularly don't want to disclose my deepest, darkest thoughts when there might be a drone outside the window with yeah, we are trained for, on us. <laughs> we are looking for that. But, no, but Sean Connery, Roger Moore, or, or somebody else. Oh, that's a tough call. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. I like Sean Connery. Well, I do, except since Saturday Night Live did that whole swords thing, so I, uh, I don't see him in a different <laughs> light. But my favorite beginning um, is um, The Spy Who Loved Me, you know, with the yeah, parachute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that is a good one. That right, and nothing one. to do with Barbara Bach. So um, <laughs> <laughs> so always the pragmatist, Don Myrick, abandoned a budding career as a pianist for technology, following her father into the world of engineering. She's made a notable career by moving fluidly between the private sector and the public sector, finding a way to meld the best of both worlds. Never wanted to do anything halfway, Don has risen through the often female and friendly tech landscape to become deputy director of the CIA for science and technology, a role which we might expect to be played by Harrison Ford, not someone who spends her weekends gardening. Competitive gardening, right? Yeah, really. Don, welcome to Tectonics. Tell us about what in your childhood led you here when you should be playing at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> well, thanks, Lisa and David, for having me on. Um, boy, that's a great uh, startup. I uh, think I'll hire you permanently for my next gig. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was always fascinated by uh, math and physics and things like that. I was I was the oldest, and my dad bought me an erector set when I was seven years old and uh, also encouraged me to be a musician. But uh, when it came time to decide what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, I just couldn't see myself being kind of a bad, mm, I don't know, high school choral director with a music degree. So I decided to follow my dad into electrical engineering and loved it and have done very well and really enjoy working with technology and delivering good stuff to people. So you told me you were taking lessons in high school from the head of the Carnegie Mellon Music Department, and that person told you your skills were merely adequate. (laughs) So have you been, has that been in your head ever since? I mean, has that been a driver for you or did you just let it go? I let it go. Um, I, at the time, I, a German, you know, very traditional German. Lisa's woman. looking very skeptically, by the way. <laughs> Lisa, if you're, not, you're not even hooked up to one of your uh, lie detectors, but Lisa is very, uh, is very skeptical. Hey, look, I have a poly coming up, so don't rattle me here. No, um, <laughs> uh, no I think I, she, the most she would ever say when I did something was that I played adequately. And that just really made me think that I didn't have much of a, of a career future as a pianist. And only when I decided I wasn't going to take lessons anymore, which I did in my junior year of college because I couldn't just keep up, did she tell me that I had been one of her most promising students. So I, I still play. I enjoy it. It's a great release. But I don't have any um, 
I don't have any doubts or, uh, you know, I don't regret uh, making the decisions that I did. Did you ever do any of those uh, four hands pieces with uh, Condoleezza Rice? <laughs> no, but I would love to. <laughs> He's quite the pianist, so that would be a lot of fun. Absolutely. So your dad was an engineer at Westinghouse working in 3D simulations of nuclear reactors. So casual. Well, uh, so, and <laughs> well, I know who, he was who doesn't a, really. Yeah, really. I know he was uh, on the first cray, the first cray ever ship, actually. So it was really exciting. Wow. Yeah. Really. Yeah, it's in the museum now out there. Really, out out here in California. Yes, Mountain View. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've been in that museum. I'll have to go look for it next time I'm there. It's the one with the uh, with the, the the bench around it. Okay, that's awesome. Well, we'll go check it out. So the the yeah. the Science and Technology Museum in Mountain View. I'm pretty sure you're referring to, and. I suspect that you were probably one of the few female electrical engineering students back at that time. How was that for you? Yeah, what was it like being in being in double E? Um, uh, that's super. I mean, it's super. It's. Uh, I mean, there couldn't have been. It. It, it does, It's not known for being especially diverse. No, it, and it wasn't. Um, I was in their late seventies, graduated in eighty one with my undergrad, and uh, there were four hundred electrical engineers that actually managed to graduate. Nine of them were women. So, um, oh the, as we used to say, the odds were good, but the goods were odd. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It was. It, it actually made me very comfortable being around, you know, a lot of men all of the time. And I happened to be in a sorority, so I had that part to kind of balance out my my social life. And they were, um, let's see, one other electrical engineer in my whole my whole sorority, which was about eighty people. So we had a good balance there of all different kinds of folks, and uh, I, I, but I love the engineering and the math, so I, I'm, it, it worked out fine. So your first engineering job after school was in the private sector, but for a government contractor, TRW. Mm-hmm. Were you always attracted to the super secret spy stuff? You know, I never even thought about it, honestly. I just wanted to do good work, and I was very passionate about delivering technology that changed people's lives, that affected them in a way that mattered. And so I guess the national security thing seemed to be an affinity that I never really thought through too much. I don't know how introspective you are when you're, you know, early 20s. It was a good job, and I felt like I could make a contribution that mattered in some sense. And uh, it was uh, an opportunity to get about as far away from Pittsburgh as you could be (laughs) because I got to go to Los Angeles. Wow, that must have been a big difference. (laughs) What was it about – what was the thing you loved about Los Angeles? What was the thing that made you want to be in there versus Pittsburgh? Uh, volleyball on the beach, you know, every Friday night the entire year with a bunch of friends, <laughs> honestly. That's great. <laughs> so one of the questions going back to, the, to the, 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 your, 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 your first role, one of our previous guests, uh, Deb Kilpatrick, was, you know, um, it was in, I, I forget if she was double E, yeah, but um, I so. Mackie, I think, at Georgia Tech, right? Um, and, but, you know, but she sort of, I mean, gave almost not quite a hidden figures-like story, but almost about what it was like being one of the few female engineers at a generally, at a government contractor, was like building engines or something, yeah, right? right. Um, and just how, you know, we, I mean, it was just not set up for women. Um, you know, uh, and it was, and it, it was, you know, she felt very, I think she got the sense, I mean, she was incredibly competent, but, but very, a little bit self-conscious um, of being one of the few female engineers at the place. Um, what was your experience like? So it was interesting. They had a woman recruit me who was an African-American engineer, and she mentored me in my first couple of years there. Brilliant. Um, she was in upper management, really, really capable. So it wasn't, you know, she wasn't a token. And uh, I, I just used her as a role model and didn't really think about it too much. I discovered that it's actually, I could be very powerful as a woman because you, you get to ask 
kinds of questions that maybe men aren't allowed to ask or aren't willing to ask, at least for that generation. Like what? Um, Things like, um, so let me see if I understand this. And then you play back to them what you think you heard. And in some cases, um, phrase it in such a way that it was obvious that that couldn't possibly be how they drew their conclusion. It made me kind of think ahead a little bit, which was fun. And then it turned into kind of a, if I can ask the right question, I can actually bring the group kind of where it needs to go as to where it seems appears to be going. And I probably watched her do that a few times and figured it out. And I don't remember that she specifically coached me, but um, I saw how effective it was as she interacted with the team and and had a great uh, role model to, to pattern match. That's so interesting with the idea of, of having, you know, sort of a, uh, a, a mentor and a, and a role model. That sounds to me in, uh, so much like I think what Lisa C. Sweetener is uh, is trying to do and trying to trying to create. And it seems like a real example of how it can be incredibly effective. It made a huge impression on me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think mentors, having a really good mentor is a huge asset in any career, male or female. Um, I I know you've done stints. So you've done stints in in the private sector, TRW, AOL, other places. You've done stints at in the in the public sector, JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab, CIA, etc. What do you like better? What's more fun, the private sector or the public sector, and why? <laughs> so I have the service gene. So if I um, if I don't get to scratch that itch, then I get antsy. So I think I spent more of my career in the public sector because that's that's the the thing that I feel um, com- most compelled by. I like the private, uh, I'm sorry, in the public sector. I like the public sector because you can take the long view. Uh, for example, one of the things our organization built back in the day was Oxcart, which turned into um, the SR-71. And, you know, you don't get to do things like that so much in the private sector. What's the SR-71? I know, it's a Blackhawk, right? <laughs> The SR-71 was a really, really advanced biplane that flew over Russia in the 50s, long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like Blackbird or Blackhawk or something. No, they ha- they have one in Huntsville, Alabama. They ha- right, like they have it, uh, and they have one at the Smithsonian near Dulles. So we have one on a stick in our parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I totally do too. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I like the, I like the public sector for that reason. I like the private sector as well because I actually felt like I was, you know, putting the internet on training wheels for people like my mom who would otherwise have had no way to um, interact with, I had children on the West Coast and she was in Pittsburgh, so there was no way for us to interact other than through the internet very regularly. So I felt kind of called by that, I guess. But I also like the fact that um, you get a you get a decision very, very quickly about investments, and then you never look back. And the story I remember there is our CFO. When I first got to AOL, we had to redesign the login process for speed and security. And we needed about 30 million bucks, and I laid it out for him. And he said, okay, fine, you know, go for it. And I said, well, do you want reviews or anything? And he said, no, we'll just fire your butt if you don't deliver. And that was, I had just come from government. And I was like, wow, okay, I'm ready. So we delivered. <laughs> <laughs> So you were at AOL at a pretty pivotal time in that company's life. What did you find in Silicon Valley that's hard to find in D.C.? Wow. So there's just, um, I'll say there's something in the air and in the water out there. It's a lot more uh, open to um, diversity of thought and behavior and a whole bunch of things. I think D.C. is getting better, but I think there's still a stark difference between the two. And I felt very fortunate. I got to be when Rumsfeld was the sex death. I got um, identified to be part of a group that did the first outreach to Silicon Valley, and I got to meet the founders of Google 
and uh, Mark Kwame and Ted Schlein and a whole bunch of people that did uh, Mark Andreessen, a whole bunch of people that were the leading lights at the time and really just bonded with them. I, uh, many of these folks I still get together with, still have dinner with. And uh, it was just a fabulous time to, to be associated with the Valley. And I just maintain those relationships because it's the great stuff comes from the Valley. Are you struck by, the, is it the agility or the ability? I mean, I thought that that quick example you just gave was a, it's a highly resonant example of sort of the approach of, you know, you'll, people will invest big and if it doesn't work out, you know, like you're gone. Right. <laughs> you know, it's sort of as, you know, versus many reviews, many of this, like, let's try it. The one thing about that example is Silicon Valley has a reputation for being a place where it's okay to fail, where failure, failure is more tolerated than in the government. Has that, you know, or in other other, uh, other other organizations, has that been your experience, or do you think that's overstated? No, I think it's absolutely the case. I ran acquisition for the government in my previous job, and if you didn't make um, your deliverables on time and on budget, then it was what we called it the Flemish panel of judges, and you did regular reviews with them. So it just made everything very, very ponderous. You had to have complete requirement specs before you could get a dollar. It, it just really, really slows down how agile and responsive. And I also don't believe, based on ALO experience and others, that users are all that great about articulating what they need with, with some exceptions. Like, I don't know, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have said, I need to touch my phone. So, this is such an important point, though, of how things are specced out. I, I, I would almost love, love for you to amplify on it, because if, if I'm hearing you right, see, see, I'm learning. Um, if I'm <laughs> hearing you right, um, what, what, we, we, we just, and, you know, because we're getting in touch with his feminine side here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's even more general than that. Um, how for, you know, for large products, I mean, the key thing out here is, is sort of is agile development and, and iterating and iterating and iterating. And it's, it's, it is, it's in contrast to this sort of what you're describing, I think, as this more traditional approach where you have to have everything fully specced out before you get dollar one. And I just don't know how you even can do that approach in the modern age. Is, is, have you seen the government evolving more uh, so that they're, 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 more, they're able to better embrace the sort of uh, iterative and agile development that Silicon Valley is known for? Absolutely. Well, at least that's my, what I told my boss is that you know, my goal for the next couple of years for my organization is that we fail faster and understand better how to get in sync with commercial cycles, which are much faster than ours. And we have, one of the nice things about the agency is we have special authorities, so we can do such things. But I just brought my, brought all of my corporate board, which is my next level of management, Radical Candor and the, least, the Lean Startup, with the idea that we're, go, and we're gonna try, we have pockets of folks doing agile development, but we're gonna try and systematize that across the organization going forward. And that's kind of my, I feel like, with my experience, that's the big ad that I can provide to the organization is that we get a lot more agile in the next two years and leverage commercial a whole lot more than we are. Interesting. So now you're a deputy director of the CIA. What is your, can you tell people what your span of activities is? Are, are you like Q and, and James Bond or like what's your whole purview there? <laughs> yes, it's very, it's very much like Q and James Bond. There is a, um, if there's anything to do with uh, physical phenomenology um, in any domain, any kind of collection, and all source, that's what we do. And I know that's very broad, and it's probably DC-ish words, but um, yes, we do planes, trains, automobiles. What would be a concrete example? We do, so one of the things that we'll, we'll talk about is we look at weather patterns and mosquito-borne diseases and try to do correlation and see if Zika showed up someplace that it shouldn't have. 
that's that's one end of the spectrum. Um, let's see. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, we are figuring out how to do covert communications for assets that are in um, places that they shouldn't be. And then kind of uh, big collections of everything in between. So it's uh, very broad. <laughs> so I saw in an article, you said you have 137 artificial intelligence projects in progress or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> is AI dominating your conversation as much Absolutely. as it is in the Silicon Valley conversation? We have uh, um, Inkytel out there, as you recall. Yeah, sure. And they do, yeah, they do great due diligence for us. And what we're finding is that about one in 30 companies that claim they're doing uh, deep learning are actually doing deep learning. It's the greatest buzzword since uh, marketing buzzword, I guess, and also capital raising buzzword since uh yeah no kidding i don't know client server or whatever since big data yes data exactly so and you you can imagine we do um we do identity intelligence things like handwriting analysis we do uh, natural language processing we do video um processing and tagging so all of the things that you would think about that would um be important for, you know, commercial entities that are trying to do competitive intelligence or understanding their consumer base. We're doing those same things on data sets that uh, are both that we buy as well as that we acquire through other means in order to provide good national security. What hist- uh, Not really historically, but recently, I guess, one of the most famous or well-known partnerships um, of your organization with Silicon Valley has been the uh, the work involving Palantir. Is that something that uh, that 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 still remains a um, a, a big partnership and a, a sort of like a core data engine and data analytics approach for you. It is. Um, we have a lot of talent here installed, but <laughs> I'll also say that we're exploring options. Um, their licensing model is, is uh, challenging for us because of the cost associated, and we also want to make sure that we're keeping up with the the latest and greatest from um, the Valley. And we know that, for example, others like the Chinese are very interested in the technology as well. Well, that's so interesting to think about you guys partnering with companies in Silicon Valley, because like if somebody, you know, goes out of business or changes their business model because it's better for their company, how does that impact our national security? But I guess you really have to be careful about who you partner with on the on the commercial front. Which which is why, for particularly for startups, we accept the the failure rates that go with that. And we work with InQtel because we think they have the gold standard for due diligence. And we actually bring for every dollar we put into InQtel, they it's matched generally by 15 uh, of non-USG dollars. And we have an absorption rate of about 30% once they do make a, make a, an investment, which is pretty high. So we think their due diligence is really good and they do a great job of understanding our problem set and connecting us up with people that are going to get to the finish line, whether that's an M&A or whether it's a, an IPO or whatever it is, and then uh, allows us to rely on their technology for you know the duration. So is a major focus of uh, your work um, related to uh, to bioterrorism. I mean, I mean, I guess in my own, I, I you know, I, I keep thinking of movies like um, like the Andromeda Strain or, or 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 something like that, and I sort of imagine, uh, you know, Michael Crichton. Um, and um, uh, do you is that a major focus, or you know, bioterrorism and its prevention and detection? Um, is that something that that you in particular spend a lot of time thinking about? It is. It is. And it is one of the, I'll say that it is probably my highest worry deed right now, just in terms of um, how fast it's evolving and the potential for good as well as for ill 
um, from a, a counter bio perspective. And that is one of our clear responsibilities is to protect the U.S. from a, a biological attacks. So we do a fair amount of work with IARPA and InQtel, um, developing and understanding the capabilities that are emerging so that we best know how to um, leverage those. And, and one example I can give is, of course, if there is an outbreak of something, then what we want to be able to do is tell the president whether or not it was engineered in some sense. So there's a program at IARPA um, called Felix that looks for um, markers that would indicate that something has been engineered biologically rather than emerged um, naturally. Yeah, really. I mean, it seems, you know, we think about some of these diseases that hit the U.S., even just naturally, but I had never, it never occurred to me to think about it the way you're describing, you know, maybe it's not so natural. Or maybe well, how scary and to have to think, I mean, yeah. you know, if we've seen almost every, you know, every week, tragically, yeah. examples of people doing terrible, you know, really just, just amoral, moral actions um, and, 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 and even killing themselves, you know, to, to do yeah. other things. And then you think, my gosh, if you take that and link it to some of this, you know, the, your biology, how horrible it could be. So it's, yeah. I'm glad you're thinking about yeah, this. I've got somebody's worried about it, huh? So I, I know the, the thinking on the biological front is extending also to synthetic biology, uh, an area of increasing interest, you know, again, both in D.C. and Silicon Valley. How do you see this applying to what you do? What are, what are the promising opportunities there? Um, so I think that there's lots of opportunities there as well as, and, it, you know, technology is ambivalent. It can be used for good or for ill. Um, we, we see huge upside, for example, in the work that's being done for computational biology and biological storage, biology-based storage. Um, we have reams of data, as you might expect, and have lots of, that's why we have so much machine learning, AI kinds of things going on. So we think there's huge potential for us there. Um, I guess I, I, I mentioned this, but I'll say it again. The good news is, is that we looked at six verticals in terms of um, decision time and accuracy, and the data that we can acquire and the data that is uh, available through other means, publicly and other means, gives our decision makers um, better accuracy, but also more time to contemplate the facts in front of them and make decisions. So we think that's really, really important, and anything that helps with that cycle um, increases the accuracy as well as the time to, to, to allow them to make a decision. So we think that's really, really interesting. Um, we also do a lot with, as we said, human DNA, but we also we also look a lot at uh, things like um, uh, spread of diseases and, and look for anomalies to ensure that we're not seeing something that seems out of character. We're also very concerned about being able to introduce, I'll say, malware into DNA. Um, so there's 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 lots of things that because as you know, um, getting if you if you co-generate um, even if there's just minor leakage, there's still leakage. So um, we're we're very interested in kind of paying attention to even the dark corners of what's emerging here. And there's got to be, I mean, so many areas that are so close where it feels like they can go either way. I mean, there was all this conversation, right, with mosquitoes and how you can you sort of um, genetically engineer them so that you can sort of um, make them less lethal, right? Um, but some, but then people are worried about that, how some of that same technology, if, if it was if it was done less benevolently, I mean, people were worried even if it was done benevolently, um, there were some real damages that could happen. And then I'm thinking if you if you then you worry about really doing it less malevolently. And I guess trying to keep an eye on, you know, 
one of the things it sounds like you're saying is, okay, you know, you're trying to, technology that could be good could also be used for ill. But in so many of the cases, once you open up sort of Pandora's box, you don't know. I mean, I, I would, how much, I guess, do you spend time worrying about things that's going to be done deliberately and malevolently versus something that people are screwing around, whether here or in another country, and it just gets out of control? Yeah, I guess it's not so much right now the malevolently. I, as, I'm also a gardener, as Lisa mentioned at the beginning, and have, so have a fair amount of, I'll say, interest in that. I think what we worry about more is that the unintended consequences like 30 generations from now. And we don't think the, longi- the longitudinal studies exist yet for us to um, be able to assess. And, and it, you know, our sense is it wouldn't be done uh, with the idea that you're you're going to introduce a problem into a mm-hmm. into a species, but that it's just you don't understand what what it is that you have introduced. And you know the American banana. There have been examples of um, where we've lost the genetic material and basically bred out for certain things, and then discovered that um, perhaps there was a reason. <laughs> Oops. For there to be yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you wind up with you wind up with like bad dinosaurs or something right <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, speaking of Jurassic Park, uh, do you think the U.S. is still ahead in technology? I mean, we used to always be, you know, clearly the leader in that in the development technology. Or others catching up or even passing us? Uh, how do you think we're doing there? Um, I think that we are still the best systems engineers in the world, which makes which makes me optimistic. I'm not sure that we are in in certain areas that we are still leading to the extent, or maybe not at all, that we think we are. Um, if you look at um, mobile wireless, for example, and if you look at um, chip fabrication, I mean, there's a, a, a set of things where if you look around, the innovation seems to be coming. There's still U.S. innovation, U.S.-based innovation, but um, it seems to be coming more prevalently from other parts of the world. So that is something that we actually pay attention to as well um, and not just rest on our laurels in terms of we're sure we've got this. I also think that there's opportunities then to revisit um, how we think about uh, protecting IP kind of on a global scale as opposed to just the U.S.-based um, systems or the country-based systems that we have in place right now. What countries are, are surging ahead of us in certain categories? Where do you think we should be keeping our eye on the most? Well, I think that, you know, clearly the Chinese have been doing high-performance computing and, and have owned that space um, in terms of the computational metrics that we all have agreed to for a while now which is, should give us all pause, given that uh, we're all talking about big data and AI and, um, you know, that kind, that class of problem. Um, I think we think we're still ahead in synthetic biology, but uh, I think that that's something that we have to pay attention to, too. I have another question, which is, I guess, in a way less, almost more personal, but related to, to your work. Um, you know, in, one of the things in Silicon Valley and elsewhere is, you know, people love talking about what they're what they're doing. Oh, here we've, we're crushing this. We're doing that. Is it how is it just personally to have all of your so much of your work and your passion it rooted in something that you you know you can't just presumably go and 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 talk about and you have to be so circumspect about everything that you're doing. You know, you have to be kind of suspicious about people you interact with. How is that just personally to live in that kind of environment and within those constraints? She'd tell you, but she'd have to kill you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, so I I actually do a fair amount of speaking publicly because I think you can talk about technology and get pretty deep into it without drawing people into the dark corners that I worry about. And so I actually think that's part of my responsibility is to be able to have those conversations. I don't, I, I need really, really the smartest people on the planet who are willing to work with me. 
um, to help me solve really important challenges. And so I have to be able to articulate that. And if you don't do it in the context of a dark place or an, an, you know, an adversary's attempts or whatever, then I think we can actually have really, really good conversations. And that's, that's been my experience. And one of my passions in the job is, is bringing those two communities together because we can't just based on dollars alone, the government can't possibly think about leading the charge. So it's, it's my responsibility as one of the leaders in the government side to make sure that we're having conversations with all the smart people on the commercial side and leveraging everything that we can there. So it really is like you're implementing, you know, the sort of the build joy law, right, about most of the smartest people work somewhere else or right. um, and, and the idea that you're, you're trying to, it sounds like, uh, assiduously avoid the not invented here problem and to, to almost do the opposite and to try to get the very best talent, skills and uh, creativity around and ideally uh, be able to bring it to bear to the problems that you're uh, contemplating. Absolutely. That is absolutely what we're trying to do. And that's what IARPA and Inky tell are about. Uh, unclassified problem sets, very rich websites. We want people to know what our toughest challenges are and be working with us and reaching out to us to the extent that they're comfortable. And, and they don't have to deal directly with us. I, you know, they can deal with any organization. And as long as we can get access to the information or the technology, um, I think we're all safer and better because of it. So, Don, back to the you never do anything halfway kind of story. Uh, you told me that you're a master gardener mm-hmm. and that you derive real joy from everything from planting heritage trees to a, quote, really good weed, which has an entirely different meaning in California. <laughs> what is it about digging in the what is it about digging in the dirt after a day in the tech world that gives you joy? I think, again, I, I think I'm a, just a system thinker. This whole slow process of how trees release sugars to keep their microbes um, healthy over the winter and how the, the microbes then help replenish them so that they can bloom or pop leaves again in the spring. It, it, it was just something, and being a part of that, I mean, at one level, it's the same thing. I'm catalyzing just a, a cycle of a, a of a very slow system. And it, it, at some level, it just gives me um, huge um, joy. And I'm very comfortable with the fact that my husband and I um, planted a couple of old trees or young trees, a shagbark hickory and a white oak that will be in their glory in 200 years. I won't be around, but it gives me great joy to know that, that, that somebody will appreciate that. Hopefully that it's not just a parking lot for Walmart or something, but Um, I don't live there. I think about the big tree that'll be there and somebody singing, wow, what a magnificent white oak. That's awesome. I, I, so nice to end on that note and think about, you know, the, the broadness of your interests as I think so many people in the tech world just kind of forget that the natural world exists. So it's a, it's a lovely thought. And Don, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Really wonderful. Well, thank you. Really terrific. Thank you both. I really appreciate the opportunity. And if there's anything I can do or uh, you want to shoot anybody at me, we're always happy to. <laughs> we're more worried you might want to shoot somebody at us. Um, but th- so We're happy to designate some targets, though. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Today's guest, Don Myricks, was speaking to us today from Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Or at least we're in Tectonic Studio B. She's at some undisclosed location near Langley, I suspect. Yeah, exactly. In the middle of some mountain somewhere. (laughs) That is such an interesting perspective. It seems, I had, you know, you think about, on the one hand, that it makes sense for for the CIA, for the government to want to access the best technologies. But how do you sort of, how how does one actually go about it? And she she seems to, my gosh, have both the perfect background and the attitude to be able to to accomplish that. It's definitely not the person you expect, right, to be yeah. talking for the CIA and 
What a fun job to be Q. I mean, who doesn't want to be Q, right? Or M, right? <laughs> <laughs> Q is pretty cool, though. Yeah, I know, uh, exactly. I absolutely agree. Well, you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. Uh, please join us next time when our guest is Daphne Kohler, the Chief Computing Officer of Calico and the leading expert at the intersection of AI and healthcare. We're grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. We also hope that you will... Uh, uh, review us on uh, on iTunes. Help other people discover the show. Well, lovely chatting with you as always, David. Absolutely. Take care and watch out for those drones. You bet.